0: You're listening to GlendaleCC.org and to the Glendale Christian KY podcast on iTunes. This week, Senior Minister Adam Hale closes out our Resolve sermon series with a message on living radically for Jesus. Thank you for listening, and as always, we hope that this message encourages you in your walk to love and follow Jesus. Have a wonderful week. This morning, we are finishing up a series called Resolve to Simply Follow Jesus. Three weeks ago, we began this series and. With, with just that message, to follow Jesus. And we looked at the invitation that Jesus gave to the disciples, to all people, and it was simply, follow me. We looked at uh, Peter and James and Andrew and John, and, and that invitation he said when he called them to be his first disciples, come and follow me. And we said that Jesus liked people who weren't like him, and people that were not like him, liked him. And that was good news for us. And then last week, we we talked about taking the next step. We said in our relationship with Jesus, there's always a next step to take. There's always the next thing to to go after. But the difference in where we want to be and where we are are oftentimes a, a huge amount of space that we think have to be covered in one giant leap. But our faith is not about taking giant leaps. It's about taking small steps. And so we talked about the taking our next step and what our next step might look like. This morning, we're going to conclude this series with a message to resolve to live radically. This is where the rubber meets the road in Christianity. This is what separates the real from the fake. It's what uh, separates the serious from the superficial, the, the sincere from the hypocritical. And as we, read, as we have read through the Gospels, we discover that Jesus interacted with all kinds of people. And he invited them to follow him. They didn't have to change anything. They didn't have to, uh, to, to change their behaviors, to, to give up things, to do any of that stuff. They just simply had to follow him, to just watch and listen and to experience God's love. And over time, they began to adopt a lifestyle that was radically different than the way the rest of the world lived. It was radically different than anything they'd ever seen, anything they'd ever imagined they began to obey the teachings of Jesus. They began to, to follow the teachings of Jesus. And they didn't just follow. They didn't just believe. They began to act on what they saw and what they heard in Jesus. And their lives and their lifestyles changed the world. That first century Christian, it changed the, it changed the entire world because they lived radically different than the rest of the world because they began to believe What Jesus had told them, and then they acted on what they believed. And they became extraordinarily honest and generous and selfless and forgiving, and they avoided all they avoided evil without condemning others. They had a joy about life and were unafraid of death. Now think about that for a second. Our our world, there's always something dying, there's always someone dying. And we've been, even in our community in the last uh, several months, it just seemed like there's a lot of death going around. And death can be a scary thing. It can be a scary thing to face. And for a lot of people it is. It's what they fear the most. But these people, these first century Christians, who, who followed Jesus and believed what He said, and then they acted on what He said, they didn't fear death. In fact, they lived in a way that if they died, it was a reward. And what a great, uh, great testament that is for us, that we don't have to fear death, because if we follow and believe and act on the words of Jesus, then we don't have to fear death either. Paul said, for me to die is to gain. And so here's the big idea of the message this morning. Here's what I want you to see, that followers of Jesus live radically different lives. Now, this is not about payback. This is not, you know, I have to, God has done so much for me, so I have to pay him back. This is not about proof that I'm a good person or proof that I'm a Christian. It's not done out of duty or obligation. It's a simple fact that people who believe begin to obey. People who believe begin to obey. When you believe someone has your best interest at heart, when you believe that someone is has your, that they love you so much that they want what's best for you, you begin to obey, you're wide open to their influence. Think about this. It happens all the times with parents and, and friends and coaches and spouses. When I was in high school, I had a basketball coach, Coach Artie Braden, and Coach Braden was a tough coach. Um, he didn't cut anybody any slack, uh, but we all knew, we all believed that Coach Braden had our best interest in mind because nobody wanted to win more than Coach Braden did. And so, Coach Braden was was a, a disciplinarian, and so when we broke when we broke team rules or we, we didn't do what he told us to do, we would run. And I'm telling you, we ran a lot. In fact, um, it began to become a thing that we, he would tell us, just take off running, and he would set trash cans on the corners of the court because we were going to run until somebody got sick. And oftentimes we would keep running after someone got sick. And so if you got sick, you just stopped at the corner, you did what you needed to do, and then you kept running. And if you took too long there, We'd run some more. And, but, but we all believed in Coach Braden. We all believed that he had our best interest at heart. No matter how tough he was on us, no matter, no matter how many times we ran around that gym floor, we believed Coach Braden had our best interest at heart. And if Coach Braden had said, you've got to run through that brick wall, we'd have lined up to do it. Because we knew Coach Braden wanted what was best for us. We knew that it, not only did he want to make us a better basketball team, but he wanted us to be, to be better young men. And we do the same thing when we believe people have our best interest at heart. We will, we will be open to their influence. Unfortunately, if we've been repeatedly used or deeply hurt by friends or family or, or parents or coaches, we get cynical of them. We become skeptical of them. And we do the same thing in, in Christianity, in, in our spiritual life. When, when we've been hurt or abused by somebody that we think should have had our best interest at heart, we become skeptical. We, we, get, we, get, we get cynical about God we be, we become resistant to his authority and rebellious to his commands. And this is why this is why the sequence that we see throughout scripture is so significant. I don't know if you've ever picked up on this, but there's a sequence in scripture throughout all of scripture that takes place when a person becomes a follower of God or a follower of Jesus, and it's significant. And the first is to follow. Follow, just hang around. You notice the the invitation that we talked about two weeks ago, was just come follow me. Just come and hang, hang out with me. Come and watch up close. Observe what happens. Observe what we do. Observe what I talk about. Just pay attention. That's what Jesus said. Come follow me. Just be up close. You know, for, for us, that might be, a, might be just an invitation for someone to read the Bible on their own. Without the pressure of church or, or a, a preacher's opinion on what it says, just read the Bible for yourself. Just Get up close with Jesus and experience Jesus for yourself. See, Read what he said. Or maybe it's getting involved in a, in a small group or an adult Bible fellowship where, where you can do life with that group of people and they have your best interest at heart. Jesus said, follow me. You know, Jesus never started with the command to obey. Nowhere in Scripture will you ever see him say, obey and then follow. It didn't happen like that. Jesus never never made that invitation. The invitation was always to follow. The second part of this sequence is to believe, to personalize those experiences, to embrace the truth that you've witnessed and discovered, to place your trust in the one who knows you best and loves you the most. So believe, follow, believe, and then comes obey. Obey is the last one in this, to act on the things that Jesus taught us and demonstrate it. To pattern your life after, after His example. To just take that one step. Just take that one step. And every time you take that one step, you gain some, gain some experience and gain some confidence that helps you to take the next step and the step after that and the step after that. So follow, believe, obey. You could say it this way. You could say, maybe it would help you remember it a little easier, to, be, to belong, believe, behave. That's the sequence. Belong, believe, behave. But unfortunately, in the church, oftentimes we get this backwards. We expect people to behave and then believe and then belong. We want them to behave when they have very little belief in Jesus or maybe they've never really even experienced Jesus, but we want—we think that they should behave in a certain way. And then after they, they believe what we do, then they can belong. But that was never the sequence in Scripture and it's never this, it should not be the sequence today. People need a place to belong before they believe. You know what makes people want to come to Jesus when they see people who are Christians who are kind to them you know the number one reason why people uh, refuse Christianity is not because they don't think Jesus was a good man or they don't believe something that Jesus said it's because they see the way Christians act and the Christians they encounter are not kind to them and so maybe they go to a church and, and nobody speaks to them and uh, they have a bad church experience, and so they say, I'm done with that. They need a place where they can belong, a place where, where, where they feel welcome, as Ted Danson and Cheers had it right, a place where everybody knows their name. That's what people desire. They desire community, a place to belong. And you know what happens when they, when they belong somewhere, they feel like they belong, they, get, they encounter uh, Christian people, and they begin to to hear what we say, and they begin to see how we act. Then they begin to believe. Belief always follows belonging. If you if you give someone enough time, enough room and space, they will eventually begin to believe the same things that you do. We see this happen all the time with our kids. You got how many? How many of you have ever told your kid, "Don't hang out with that person. They're not a good influence. Don't hang out with that person." And you know what you say? We say you're guilty by association, right? and and what happens they become a product of the environment that they hang out with guess what happens in the church world it's no different people that find a place to belong will eventually believe because they can't help but believe because they see how people act which leads to the final one to behaving because when we understand all that god has given and done for us belief and obedience make sense it makes sense to do what Jesus says because we understand we have begun to believe what he has said is true. We've begun to see it demonstrated and, 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 and act it out for us. His provision in the past and his promises for the future give us a hope and a peace and a joy for the present. And so it makes sense to believe and obey. And we see this reflected all throughout Scripture, in the Old and the New Testament, in the in Exodus chapter 20, we see the Ten Commandments. Uh, real, real quickly Have no other gods before me. Do not worship any idols, or do not make any idols to worship. Do not misuse the name of God. Remember the Sabbath. Keep your, uh, honor your parents. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not covet. Those are ten, ten rules that God gave to the Israelite people. But you know what? He didn't give it to them on day one of the journey. You realize that? They had been in captivity for a number of years, for 400 years. They came. They saw the ten plagues take place in Egypt. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw God provide manna uh, from the heavens. They saw God provide water from a rock. God helped them to defeat the Amalekites. And then they get to this place and God says, Okay, now that you know that you can trust me, you've experienced all of these things, now that you know that you can trust me, now that you know that I love you the most, that I have your best interest at heart, now follow these rules obey these rules he didn't give them to him on day one of the journey and so god gave them these simple guidelines not as a means to earn his love but because as a creator he knows how life is intended to work he said do not murder that's not good we 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 can understand that now because we know that god has our best interest at heart and every every good parent does this we know how this works with our kids we care for our kids when they're young and as they get older, we set some house rules for them to, for their own good and for their own well-being. We say, trust us. We're your parents. We know you the best and we love you the most, right? As a parent, you, there's nobody that loves your kid more than you, right? And there's nobody that knows your kid more than you do, better than you do. And so you set some guidelines, some ground rules for them, not because you want to be that mean old parent, but because you love them and you want what's best for them. And so you tell them, don't stay out past midnight. You've got to be home at midnight, right? And, and, and every, every teenager that's ever been told that they had to have a time to come in says, Mom, everybody else gets to stay out twelve 1230. You know what my mom used to say? My mom used to say, well, I'm not their mother. And you know what? I don't love them like I love you. But you're, so you're going to be home at 12. That's what she said. It was as if saying, trust me. I know it seems like all everybody else gets to do everything else, and it seems like they're having so much more fun, but it won't last, and it won't satisfy. I'm looking out for you. I'm looking out for your best interest. And God was doing the same thing with the Israelites. He said, look, I understand there's all kinds of other countries, there, and they're doing all sorts of things, and it seems like everything's going great for them, but it won't last, and it won't satisfy. So follow these guidelines. In the New Testament, Jesus challenges his followers to live radically different lives in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter five, he, he begins to, to say things to the people that just altered the way that they thought. It was, a, it, was, it was one of those sermons that was life-changing and thought-changing for them. And it all hinges on verses 17, Matthew 5:17. Here's what Jesus says. He said, "Don't misunderstand why I've come." I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And then you skip down to verse 20. He says, But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says the law is good, but it can only govern your behavior. It does nothing to change your attitude. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, they obeyed the law. If there were were rule followers to be found in Israel and and in Jerusalem, it was the Pharisees. They were rule followers. And they patted themselves on the back for how good a job they did. They obeyed the letter of the law. But they didn't obey the spirit of the law. They patted themselves on the back and they were full of self-righteousness. And Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to bring it to its full and its intended purpose. And then he proceeds to reveal a whole new way of living. One not based on external behaviors, but, uh, but one based on in internal attitudes. And, and, external, and, and he gives five examples of that. And we'll just cover a couple of them real quick. He said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And it, you, you're all familiar with that? In Matthew chapter 5, that's what he goes on to say. You've heard it said, but I say to you. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, any man who hates his brother... Has already committed murder in his heart. Jesus didn't say, you "Now I didn't, you know, don't murder." He didn't say, "Say that's not that's a bad thing. We got to get rid of that." No, he says, "Don't murder. That's a good rule to follow. It's good rule." But I want to take you one step further than that. Don't hate your brother. Jesus goes on. He says, "You've heard it said that uh, don't commit adultery." Jesus isn't saying that's a that's a thing that's okay to do no he's not saying that he's saying quit cheating on your spouse he's he's for marriage Jesus is always for marriage and this he's not saying that it's okay to that he says it's a good law and I'm not and I haven't come to do away with that but I say whoever looks upon a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart I want to take it one step further because it's not just about your behaviors it's about your attitude and your and your and your uh, motivators. It's about those are the things that, that Jesus is concerned with. He's not so concerned that we always do the right thing, but why we do the right thing, you know, if, if we don't ever murder anybody, well, that's good. Good for you. You you and you and however many other million people that have ever lived that didn't commit murder. But if you can't get along with your neighbor because you hate your neighbor, well what kind of life have you really done? What what, what good thing have you really accomplished there? Just said murder, yeah, it's bad. Don't do it. And don't hate your neighbor. Adultery, yeah, it's bad. Don't do it. And don't don't commit, don't look lustfully on someone else. And then he concludes with this parable. The parable of the wise and the foolish builders. It's in Matthew chapter seven, verses twenty four through twenty nine. Let's start verse twenty four. This is what Jesus says. He says, Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Notice that. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. Did you catch what he said there? Who listens and follows. It's not about church attendance and getting all your questions answered or having all the right answers to the questions that people ask. It's about obedience to the teachings of Jesus. He says you're you're like a wise person who builds their house on a solid rock. Who wouldn't do that, right? It's common sense. You you lay a foundation for your house, you want it to be on something solid. It's common sense. Solid foundations are are an essential ingredient to the durability of a house. But then notice what he says in verse 25. He says, though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on a bedrock. Jesus is reminding us here that life is hard. And in this world, it's a broken place. And there are challenges and difficulties that will sneak up on us. And these storms come in all shapes and sizes. It may be be a storm in your marriage. It may be a financial storm. It may be addictions or health or kids or loss. And he says, if you build your house on a solid rock, when when the storms come, it won't collapse. Because it's built on the bedrock. As followers of Jesus, we're not exempt from these inevitable storms. They will come. We are not exempt. There's nothing in Scripture that ever indicates that if you become a Christian, all all of life's worries will just disappear. There's nothing in there. And so if if that's a common notion that you hear, or maybe that's even a a common idea that you have, I'm here to tell you that, that that's not true. In fact, when you become a Christian, things actually sometimes get harder. Life gets a little more challenging because now you're on Satan's radar. As long as you're not a Christian, Satan doesn't have to worry about you. You're one of his already. He doesn't have to worry about you. you become a Christian. Now, you're, now you've gone to the other side. You're fighting on the other team. And so you better believe. Satan will attack. And so these storms will come. But this is a significant promise and an amazing reality that we've all seen played out in the lives of other Christians and maybe even in your own who have weathered some horrific storms. And maybe even some of you here this morning are experiencing this firsthand. And the best preparation that you can make for the storm you're in or the next storm that you will face is to build your house on the example and the teachings of Jesus. Let's notice what he says in verse 26. He says, But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. Notice the difference in what he said in verse 24 and verse 26. He says in verse 24, anyone who listens and obeys. And now in verse 26 it says anyone who hears and doesn't obey, doesn't listen. You know, there's a difference between hearing and listening. Uh, men, were a great example of this. Our wives tell us something and we hear it, right? We hear what they said. We didn't necessarily listen to what they said, right? We hear it and we hear noise. Well, we, we might even hear the, the Charlie Brown teacher, that wah, 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 wah. That's what we hear, right? And we didn't listen because we didn't, follow, we didn't follow the instructions. We didn't complete the task. We didn't obey the command a lot of times, you know, and wives, you're not exempt from that. Sometimes you all do make commands, and that's okay. But there's a difference in listening and hearing. Jesus says, if you hear, and you don't obey, then you're like a foolish person who's built their house on sand. Now, I love the beach. The beach is probably, you know, you know what would make Glendale like the perfect place for me? Just the absolute perfect place? If there was a beach. That would make it, and, it was, and maybe if it was 85 degrees all year round. But if there was a beach, like then, like we're talking, this is the perfect place for me. And I, I'll, I'll walk along the beach when we're on vacation and just look at the houses. And you know what I've never noticed when I, when I look at a house in the foundation? I've never noticed one that was just sitting right on the sand. All these houses that are built down there, they have huge concrete blocks. That's what they build their houses on. Because they know that there's going to be a storm come through at some point. And if their house is on sand, it will be be washed out. Nobody does that. Nobody builds their their house on on sand because it's foolish. It's, It's a senseless risk. It doesn't make sense to. Shallow foundations undermine the integrity and the durability of a house. And a shallow foundation will undermine your ability to weather the storms that come in life. But here's what Jesus says in verse 27. He says, when the rains and the floods come. Notice that. He says, when the rains and the floods come, and the winds beat against that house, it, w- it will collapse with a mighty crash. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. You may be able to weather a few showers, a few dust storms, but when the hurricane rolls in, you're going to be toast. The two houses, they face the very same storms. You notice that? The house is built upon the rock and the house is built upon the sand. They face the same storm. The wise and the foolish, they face the same storm. The Christian and the non-Christian, we all face the same storms. But there's a different result. The wise, his house stands, and the foolish, his house collapses. Two very exact same storms, but very different outcomes. And here Jesus finishes with this verse 28 and 29. It says When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at the teaching. At, at his teachings, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their te- the teachers of the religious law. I think that's incredible. Jesus' profound simplicity caught their attention and it captured their imagination. Unlike the religious teachers who, who were superficial and had this complexity um, system that they tried to follow, and all it did was confuse and frustrate people. The, the Jewish people, they were confused and frustrated by the religious leaders because they couldn't live that lifestyle that they had. It wasn't livable. And Jesus comes with a, with a very simple message, "Follow me." And it resonated with them, and immediately they, real, they realized that He knew what He was talking about. And so real quickly, there are three important implications to this parable. Three possible responses that I want to encourage you to consider this morning. Number one is it's, it's warning. Not a threat like, I'm going to make you pay. Uh, This is not one of those kind of warnings. This is more of like an alert. Like, I love you and I don't want you to be misled or unaware. I have your best interest at heart, so pay attention. I know it sounds like a lot of work and you may feel, feel like you're missing out on the fun, but trust me, I love you and I want what's best for you. So don't skimp on the foundation and don't put it off for better weather. Number two is comfort. Maybe you've been through one of these soul-crushing hurricanes or a series of life-altering storms. Maybe you're in the midst of one right now or you see one looming on the horizon and you're wrestling with questions like, why would God do this to me? Why, Why is this happening to me? Where is God? Doesn't He care? Can He help? This parable provides the reassurance that we all need in the midst and the wake of such storms. Jesus wants us to know that He is not punishing us and He will never abandon us. We have this idea that anytime something bad happens to us, it's God punishing us. Well, that's simply not true. We see that in Job. Job had all kinds of horrific things happen to him. And it wasn't because God was punishing him. In fact, God was testing him. He was giving him an opportunity to grow in his faith. And so sometimes when bad things happen to us, it's not because God is punishing us. It's an opportunity for us to be tested in our faith, to grow in our faith, to lean more on him, to be more dependent upon God. So He's not punishing us, and He will never abandon us. And the last thing is an explanation. Perhaps you are suddenly experiencing the consequences of a poorly laid foundation. You laid your foundation on the sand. You pray, you believe, you go to church, you help out with with room at the inn, and you busy yourself with a dozen other respectable things. But it's not about being busy or being respectable. It's about obedience. And that's not meant to, to offend or condemn you. It's just an explanation And an invitation. This parable also explains why many people come back to God after a storm. A devastating event threatens threatens our house, takes out our foundation, and we realize that showing up to church and taking notes and reading the Bible are not adequate substitutes for obedience. It's all about obedience. And so my, my prayer and my heart's desire is that you would start to follow Jesus. Because when you follow Him closely for a period of time, you come to believe. And when you come to believe, given enough room and distance, you will begin to obey. And obedience is is, is radical, and it changes everything. It changes your marriage. It changes your family. It changes your friendships. It changes work. It changes your community. It changes church. It changes the way you see everything. And you know what happens when we live radically different? The rest of the world begins to take notice because we're really good. At pointing out all the things that are different about other people. And when the rest of the world sees that we are different, they begin to ask questions. They begin to say, "What what is it that makes you so different? Why do you have so much hope? You face the same things that I face. Why are you why why do you have so much joy?" And Paul said, "Be ready in season and out of season to give an account for the hope that you have." So follow until you believe. Jesus said, just follow me. I'm not asking you to to give up, uh, to, to make any life changes at this point. I'm not asking you to do things differently. Just follow Jesus. And if you follow Jesus long enough, you'll begin to believe that He is who He said He was. You'll begin to believe that He does have your best interest at heart, that He loves you the most. You know, I've never had anybody else offer to die for me. I've never had anybody else offer to redeem my sins. Except for Jesus. So I believe that we can trust Him because He's the one that loves us the most. And so follow until you believe and believe until you're willing to obey. So let me ask you this morning, who are you going to trust? Yourself? With your limited knowledge? Your limited experiences? Your peers? Who often have less knowledge than you and have less life experience than you our culture that seems like a really bad decision I don't even have to explain that one remember this God knows you best and loves you the most he sent his son to rescue and to redeem us so I think that we can trust him and this will be a radical change for some of us but it'll be worth it maybe not in 36 hours Or 36 days or 36 weeks or even 36 years but over the course of your life and for all of eternity so how's the foundation of your life holding up are there some cracks that need to be repaired some footers that need to be replaced some bad habits that need to be laid down Some, some spiritual disciplines that need to be picked up it's hard to repair your foundation in the middle of a storm in the middle of a hurricane but here's the good news The good news is that you can always rebuild. No matter how old you are, how far you've run, you can always rebuild. We saw that last week with the the prodigal son, that no matter how far you've run away from God, you're just one step away. You're always just one step away. And if you do, if you decide to rebuild his promises to all of us, to the wise, to the foolish, to the prodigal, that when the storms of life come, you will not be crushed. So follow Jesus. You'll never regret it. Order your life around the teaching of Jesus whom you can trust because He loves you the most. Belong, believe, behave. That's the sequence. And if we're going to be a church that reaches past to the next generation, we've got to be a church for people to belong before they believe and then give them enough room to believe so that they find enough room to eventually obey. And when people belong and believe and obey, the world will be different. It'll be a radical difference. You know, it was a pattern in the first century. And it's the same pattern in the 21st century. The same way that they changed the world will be the same way that we changed the world. By creating environments for people to belong, just to, to follow Jesus, to believe that He is who He said He was and that He loves us the most, and then to obey. And it's really not all that simple. It's really not all that difficult to obey. He said, love God and love people. It comes down to that. Love God and love people. So the challenge for us as a church is, are we going to be that church? Are we going to be the church that reaches the next generation by creating a place for them to belong, believe, belong, believe and then behave? Not the other way around, but belong, believe, behave. This morning, you may be at a place where, where you're not sure where you fall in that, in those three, in that sequence. Maybe, maybe you don't feel like you belong. And if you don't belong, well, that's on us. And I'm sorry about that. We, we as a church have to make you feel like you belong. And so I would love to talk to you at some point about how you can be involved and how you can feel like you belong. But maybe you do feel like you belong and now, and you're wrestling with these questions of who is Jesus? What has what He said? We'd love to talk to you about, about believing more in Jesus. Maybe you have believed for a long time and it's time now to obey. It's time to behave. We'd love to talk to you about what that next step would look like for you. And so in just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And, you can, and here's the deal. You can, you can come down front and we, we can talk here. You can write a note and, and put it in one of the boxes and, and we can contact you later this week. Or you can simply make a commitment right now, Lord, I believe, I belong and I believe and now it's time for me to behave. You can make that commitment right now and where you're sitting. But we want to we invite you to take that next step because everybody has a next step. So would you resolve to simply follow Jesus? Let me pray for us. Father God, we love you, and uh, we're thankful for for your word and the reminder that it is to us about the sequence in which people come to know you. And so, Father, my prayer is this morning that, that Glendale Christian Church would be a place where people belong, a place where we give them room to believe, and a place that would help them behave, to obey you. Father, and all the other things that we get distracted in, Father, may that be our be our core focus. To help people belong, believe, and behave. So that the world will notice what a radically different life we live. And they would take notice and they would begin to ask questions so, and find a place where they belong. And given the opportunity that they might believe. And then that they would behave. Father, my prayer this morning is that everyone here would would resolve to follow you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.